Chapter 14 Light and Dark Before the Sheol agents attacked Bouchard's complex, Agent Brown and Pravis stood on a field close to the riverbed. The high sun glared down on the unnaturally quiet area, void of any signs of life. No animals scurried across the ground, nor did any bird flutter across the sky. Within the river itself, no fish darted to and fro, nor did any insect skitter across the surface. Actually, the river never moved, nor did the wind blow. It was as if the area had been suspended in time, without any presence of life whatsoever. The land was stuck between barrenness and life, a place where a spiritual battle between the forces of light and dark would clash without being perceived by the creations of this world. Agent Brown and Pravis lifted their hands and allowed their physical human forms to melt away, revealing their depressed fallen angel forms. For this battle, they would have to focus all their power on the task at hand. They couldn't allow any bit, no matter how small, to be wasted on altering their form. The plan was plain and simple, yet elegant in its brutality. They were to call on their forces to lead a spiritual assault against the Bouchard complex. They expected to meet with an opposing force of angels. If the angels didn't show, then they would just continue with the assault. However, the absence of an opposing force was highly unlikely so. On this battlefield, they decided to initiate their diversion of enemy angelic forces so Ari and the Dark, she all official could penetrate the complex and eradicate their targets. As Agent Brown and Pravis continued to keep their hands lifted, demons appeared. Coming more quickly as time passed, the land was soon filled with tens of thousands of snarling, vicious fallen angels impatient to strike out and destroyed anything in their path. Kravis ordered Agent Brown to take a step behind him as he addressed the massive army. Today we end the words of those who opposed us. Finally, we will reach out and quiet the tongues of those daring to challenge us in our rule. Those journals will be destroyed, their internet presence quieted, and their lives extinguished. It is time for them to see how powerful and daring we are. Kravis pointed toward the horizon. Here, we gather our forces, but the compound more of our forces will move against those pathetic humans and any angels standing in our way. The massive army snarled and bellowed in unison. The expectation of war excited them, for war was a way of channeling their anger and focusing their bottled-up hate and aggression over their current painful existence outward. Pravis continued, Leave nothing in that complex standing. Erase all evidence of its existence. He shouted as he was about to motion his army forward. He stopped short when he heard a familiar noise that seemed to come from above in every direction. It sounded like a foghorn that increased in volume until the ground began to shake violently. The horn abruptly abated to reveal a single angelic being hovering 100 feet above Pravis. The Archangel Gabriel removed the horn from his lips and pointed toward Pravis and the army. Know you this day that you and your horde will meet destruction under the power of God if you persist. You are so ordered to leave this place and return to your miserable existence or face God's fiery wrath, said Gabriel. Pravis smiled. As expected, he thought, angels never can resist making a grand entrance and delivering ultimatums. We spit at you and your God, Pravis shouted at Gabriel and followed through on his promise by spitting on the ground. So be it, said Gabriel as he lifted the horn to his lips again and blew another earth-shaking note before disappearing. Pravis lifted his hand, preparing his army for war. Thousands of angels suddenly appeared in the sky with blazing swords drawn. The land became filled with the sound of snarling, cursing demons, 
and the rhythmic beating of angel wings above them. However, Pravis focused on the sudden appearance of the Archangel Michael, wielding his famed sword of war in one hand and beating his chest with the other. All the angels followed suit, adding to the intense display of pre-war gesticulating. Proud that his army wasn't daunted by the presence of Michael, Pravis wondered if the Archangel would actually enter the battle. If he did, he would be more than a match for any one of his minions and himself. Pravis remembered his last interaction with Michael and knew that, if he did enter the battle, it wouldn't be good. My brothers, shouted Pravis, death to all on this day. Attack. In response, Michael pointed his sword toward the demonic army and watched as the angelic army descended with blinding speed to meet the demons beneath them in battle. Many demons drew their swords, blazing with a sickly hue of red and black while others extended talons from their fingers and protruding spikes from their arms as they engaged the angels. It was a horrid battle as angels and demons grappled with each other. Limbs were severed, wings torn, and combatants lay unconscious and badly wounded on the battlefield. The demons outnumbered the angels nearly two to one, but the strength of each angel was nearly twice that of a demon, so the battle was equally matched. Michael watched with a careful eye as Pravis had no problems dispatching angels, while Agent Brown struggled to fend off attackers. He figured that over time, the two demons could shift the battle in their favor, so he decided to engage. With speed beyond comprehension, he descended to the ground, landing with a resounding boom. The demons close by struggled to stay on their feet as the earth shook from Michael's landing. Without much effort, he slashed and hacked his way toward the first captain, Agent Brown. Agent Brown saw Michael approaching but couldn't do anything to prevent it, since he was currently consumed with several angels attacking him at once. The next precious seconds would determine his fate. In desperation, he dodged, parried, and twisted his way to removing two angels. But before he could attack the last, Michael was upon him. Michael clapped his wings with such force that Agent Brown fell to the floor, completely helpless. Agent Brown watched in horror as Michael's sword bore down on him with blinding speed only to be met by another blade stopping its descent. Michael's blade was pushed roughly away by Pravis, who lifted Agent Brown to his feet. Let us take Michael together, Pravis said to Agent Brown. Michael took a step back and waved his fellow angels from this fight, since he could surely handle these two together. Engaging the two would allow his brothers to regain the edge. Smiling, Michael sized the two up and shook his head. As you wish, he said. Michael wasn't like his archangel counterpart Gabriel, who was always full of words while Michael allowed his sword to speak volumes during battle. Pravis and Agent Brown attacked Michael in perfect tandem, coordinating their attacks, counterattacks, and fiends. However, Michael countered perfectly and soon learned all of their individual moves and counterattacks. When Agent Brown faked an attack and turned on his heel to strike from a different position, he was met with Michael's sword in his gut. Shocked to be penetrated by the blade, Agent Brown stared directly into Michael's eyes and dropped his sword. Michael turned his sword sideways and yanked it from Agent Brown. Slumping to the ground, Agent Brown became ethereal and dissipated, descending back to the pit, where defeated fallen angels returned after losing their grip on this plane of existence. Pravis took a step back as Michael focused on him. Michael's eyes blazed incandescent white as he prepared a finishing blow for Pravis, but he stopped when a hideous scream resounded throughout the battlefield. Turning quickly, Michael saw a flaming ball, much like a meteorite cutting through the horizon toward them. 
It crashed in the middle of angels and demons still battling each other, sending hundreds flying in all directions and creating a tremendous 20-foot-deep crater. Michael turned back to dispatch Previs quickly so he could meet this new menace, but the demon was nowhere to be seen. Snake, he muttered, realizing Pravis had taken the distraction as an opportunity not to strike but to flee. When the dusk slowly cleared, every angel and demon paused to gaze upon Betha's Nibba, the fallen seraph flapping his six tremendous wings over the crater site. All became silent for Betha's Nibba had not been seen in battle since that day when he and his fellow angels were thrown from heaven. The shock at seeing the seraph in battle brought an uneasy silence. Michael, warned by God about the seraph's possible appearance, readied himself for a fight he did not know if he could win. He was stunned when Bethesniba's first words were not to him but to Pravis. Pravis, you have failed, shouted Bethesniba, looking directly at Michael. To Michael's surprise, Pravis ascended from underneath the ground several feet from him. Without saying a word, the demon bowed and disappeared. Bethesniba continued to stare at Michael with boiling hatred. Countless millennia ago, Bethesniba had approached Michael in heaven and pleaded for him to join the revolution, saying that with Michael on their side, millions more angels would follow, ensuring their victory. But when Michael refused, saying he would follow only God, Bethesniba had taken it as one of the primary reasons why they lost and were cast out. He hated Michael and had sworn that, if he ever met him in battle, he would personally rip each limb and wing from his body. All those who interfere will meet my wrath, cease all conflict, Bethesniba commanded the fallen angels. Michael breathed deeply and raised his hand, signaling for all angels to also pause their attacks. Angel and demons, for the first time in countless ages, ignored each other to witness what would soon become an epic celestial battle. You remember what I said the last time we saw each other, Michael? Asked Bethesniba. Michael ignored Bethesniba and produced another sword in his other hand. I hold you personally responsible for this outcome. With you, we had a better chance of winning, but you thought only of elevating your own status of importance with our banishment. Bethesniba snarled. You made your choice and I made mine. You shouldn't blame someone else for the outcome. Michael said, preparing himself for the attack. True, but nevertheless, said Bethesniba with clenched teeth. It is time for me to make good on my promise, Archangel. Faster than Michael had expected, the seraph was on top of him, slashing with one of his wings. Michael blocked the blow with one of his swords, but the force of the attack pushed him several feet back. He knew that the wings of a seraph were powerful, but never had he thought they could be as effective a weapon as his angelic sword. The density of the wing made it seem as sturdy as his own weapon, and Bethesniba had six of them. I think I'll start with your wings first, said Bethesniba as he slowly brought all wings in front of him and separated them quickly. The speed of wings being drawn apart caused a powerful rush of air, pulling Michael toward the seraph. Bethesniba rushed forward, meeting Michael with two slashing wings. The force of the blows pushed Michael toward the ground in an awkward position. He watched as Bethesniba lifted one of his wings, aiming at Michael's exposed abdomen. But Michael rolled and swept Bethesniba's leg from under him. The seraph stumbled but swiftly regained his position. I see your master finally release you for battle. You must be truly desperate to send someone so powerful yet unskilled, said Michael knowing all too well that the seraph was indeed powerful but not as accomplished in the art of war as he. 
Michael must be near perfect in this fight. One of the mistake to be his last. Bethesneba growled and launched at the Archangel with four wings. With blinding speed, he attacked Michael ferociously. Michael blocked each strike, but was pushed back each time. Sensing the frustration in Betha's Nibba, and knowing that the next attack would be with all six wings, Michael tapped into his spirit and radiated a brilliant white light all around him. The demons turned their heads from the brilliancy of the light, while the angels lowered their heads in respect to the one who could approach the throne room of God. Betha's Nibba neither turned nor bowed. Long before his fall, he too had been one of the angels from the throne room. Instead, he covered each eye with a wing, leaving only four to continue his attacks. Not needing eyes to attack, Bethes Nibba folded his wings inward and started spinning rapidly like a top. Before Michael could counter, he felt himself flying toward the Seraph. He held both swords as he flew toward Bethes Nibba, hoping to impale the Seraph when he made contact. To his surprise, both swords reflected off the spinning Seraph, causing him to lose his grip. As his body impacted, he went limp to roll with the blow and landed on the ground. Betha's Nibba stopped spinning, jumped, and landed both feet on Michael's arms, preventing him from moving. And now, Archangel, it is time for your dismemberment, hissed Betha's Nibba as he lifted all four wings, ready to plunge them into Michael's arms and legs. Michael quickly tucked his legs close to his chest and pressed them upward into Betha's Nibba's chin. The force of the impact sent Betha's Nibba stumbling backward in confusion. Michael leaped up, summoned his swords to him, and was about to deal a crippling blow to the seraph when he paused, closed his eyes, and disappeared. Betha's Nibba shook his head, still reeling from the archangel's upward kick. He removed the wings from his eyes since the light from Michael was gone. He spun around, searching for Michael and wondering where the next attack would originate. He glanced over the sea of angels and saw Michael nowhere. The impossible started to form in his head. Had Michael just fled from battle? Was Michael the Archangel, a coward? Betha's Nippo was about to proclaim his victory when Michael reappeared several feet in front of him. Both swords were pointing toward the Seraph, but one possessed a hint of dark ethereal mist, as if it had just vanquished a fallen angel. Michael, no longer emitting the brilliant radiance, pointed the sword with the dark ethereal mist toward Betha's Nippo. I take no pleasure in this battle, for you had a choice long ago and chose wrong. For an eternity, you will relive that one mistake and forever be a shade of what you once were. You traded your position for nothing, and nothing will be what you have forever." Betha's Nibbo was about to renew his attack when suddenly his wings covered his eyes. He remained silent for an uneasy period of time. Michael waited patiently for what he knew was to come. When the Seraph once again looked upon Michael's face, the pain and anger within were beyond measure. Not once taking his eyes off the archangel, Betha's Nibba addressed the demonic army. It's over, he said with unbridled rage, return. Without question, every demon disappeared, leaving only Michael and his army to face the Seraph. Hear me, Michael. The day will come when we will meet again. On that day, I will spill your blood and end you. Michael lifted both swords high above him and shook his head. And so your master has ordered your return. No matter, fill your heart with those words, for you shall never defeat me as long as God is on my side." Betha's Nibba opened all his wings and released a roar that reverberated before he disappeared with a thunderous clap. Both swords vanished from Michael's hands as he turned to his brothers. God's will? Be done, he shouted. In God do we trust, 
Every angel responded. Within seconds, the door to the computer room was shattered, revealing Ari. His flaming eyes first focused on the small chest, the angel, Anne-Marie, and then Julie. The angel was no threat. It was one of those lowly, comforting celestial beings and must have just comforted Anne-Marie before she died. He could no longer sense light from her. If the chest did indeed contain the journals, then his long quest would be over. He could tie up the loose ends by killing the Duquesnes and Julie. Time to die. He said it as he slowly reached down and opened the chest, revealing the journals. Without hesitation, he placed his huge hands on the books, setting them instantly aflame. Julie gasped as she witnessed firsthand the sheer evil of the Dark Assassin. She began to shake uncontrollably in fear as she realized that seeing this entity up close was beyond anything the Duquesnes had described to her. She caught the hands of the angel on her shoulders, slowly turning her around. Julie, Julie, look at me, said the angel. Julie struggled to meet the angel's gaze. Doing so would mean tearing her eyes away from what the dark assassin was doing next. How could she turn her back on something so ominous? Ari moved toward the computer equipment and violently pushed Julie away, sending her body crashing hard against the wall. He placed his hands on the computers and gladly watched as each one he touched was reduced to slag and eventually ashes. Picking up the monitors, he smashed them together, scattering glass fragments in every direction. When he was satisfied that the instruments of Julie Targus had been utterly destroyed, he focused on Julie. You have done so much, said the angel to Julie. Like the apostles of old, you have shared the truth and light to so many, and they in turn have shared with others. By your actions, you have changed the lives of so many. God is well pleased with you and is calling you home. Home? Julie mumbled. No more pain, no more running, and no more worries, answered the angel. Ari looked at Julie, paused, and saw the blank look in her eyes as she stared straight at him without once blinking. He looked at the angel kneeling next to her and realized that she was comforting Julie, shielding her from what he was going to do next. Damn you! Sometimes you take all the fun out of everything. He said to the angel as he approached Julie, You probably did the same thing to Sir Joffrey Fairchild before I arrived too. The angel ignored Ori as her hands continued to hold Julie's shoulders. Ari roughly grabbed Julie by the neck and lifted her off her feet. To his surprise, the angel was still holding Julie by her shoulders. With his free hand, he swung at the angel but struck nothing as his hand went through her. Adding to his frustration, Ari noticed tears running down Julie's eyes along with a joyful smile on her face. Disgusted, he snapped her neck and watched the life slowly drain from her body. Put her down, screamed Keiko from the doorway. Put her down or we'll shoot. Both Keiko and Brooke were in the open doorway, weapons pointed at Ori's back. Dirty, sweaty, bruised, and cut from several lacerations, the two agents kept their fingers on their triggers, hoping they wouldn't have to fire and endanger Julie. They realized they had to act soon, since the girl didn't look as though she was faring well, dangling from Ori's death grip on her neck. Put her down now, shouted Brooke. Back still turned, Ori smiled. Maybe he could have some fun after all. He dropped Julie's lifeless body to the ground and turned around slowly. Don't worry, there's more of this to go around. Be patient, said Ari. Both women shuddered as the sheer evil of the dark assassin slammed into their consciousness. Brooke's finger fell limp and no longer exerted pressure on the rifle's trigger. 
Keiko couldn't take her eyes off the red glow from behind the sunglasses that threatened to suck her in and devour her. Before she could even realize what she was doing, she pressed the trigger on the rifle and emptied the full clip into the dark assassin. Ari twisted back and forth from the numerous impacts plummeting his body. At hearing the sound of Keiko firing, Brooke snapped out of it and joined in, firing everything she had at the man. Several long seconds later, Ari slumped toward the floor. Blood from his human form poured from numerous penetrations. From deep within, a ragged laugh escaped his lips as he straightened and walked toward the two women, who were now totally transfixed and unable to move a muscle. They couldn't believe that the man could stand after being hit by so many bullets from two assault rifles. I don't know who you two are, but you've never faced a dark assassin before, I guess, snarled Ari. With incredible speed, he pounced at them, only to be grabbed from behind by the Archangel Michael. Michael plunged one of his swords through the beast and watched as its ethereal form dissipated from the monstrous human body. Ori fell to the floor, completely devoid of all life. Michael looked at the two women and back at the comforting angel behind him before he nodded, and the two angels disappeared. Unaware of the angel's presence, Keiko and Brooks saw only Ari lunging at them before he fell dead from the serious wounds their assault rifles had caused him. Keiko nudged Brooke to check on the woman. As Brooke gingerly walked around Ari in fear that he might come to life again, she checked Julie's vitals and shook her head. Keiko carefully checked Ari, confirmed he was dead, and eventually came to the same conclusion about Anne-Mary. Keiko sat down, spent. Man, I thought we were dead back there, she said. Brooke edged up close to her. That man was a freaking Terminator, guess he didn't know he was dead yet. Breathing heavily, Keiko continued to look at the death and destruction within the room. For the first time in her life, she didn't try to make sense of it all. She just accepted it for what it was, finally realizing that not everything in life could be explained. The sounds of gunfire refocused her attention. She looked at Brooke and saw her friend trying to make sense of everything. Keiko dropped her rifle and replaced it with her pistol. There's nothing more we can do here. Let's try to make our way back to the Duquesne family and help security guarding them. Brooke nodded without a word and equipped her pistol. The two quietly walked back downstairs and made their way back to where they'd left security to take care of Mrs. Duquesne and the two kids. To their surprise, they found no resistance from the enemy, unlike what they'd experienced when they'd successfully escaped Bouchard's residence. There had been casualties when they'd first broken free, and they'd engaged in a continuous fight to the Duquesnes. Now, there was nothing but silence. When they returned to the building, a security officer greeted them and informed them that the enemy was retreating, the Duquesnes were safe, and a small group was going back to Bouchard's to make sure they were okay. Keiko nodded and remained outside as Brooke went in the house to inform everyone of Annery's and Julie's demises. She heard the sobbing from within and lowered her head. If they had been only a few seconds faster, they could have saved at least one of them, she was sure of it. Brooke returned and placed a still shaky hand on her friend's shoulder. We have to find a way to make outside contact, Kate. We're still too isolated out here. Keiko slumped onto one of the front steps of the house. Exhaustion started to set in as her adrenaline levels dropped. I'm sure Bouchard is working on that. Can you ask our two Canadian agents to go back and look in on it? Said Keiko. Sure, no problem. Brooke paused. You just take it easy for a while she said as she went back into the house. Within seconds, 
The two Canadian officers sprinted out of the house without saying a word to Keiko. She smiled as she recalled the expertise of the two. Both she and Brooke would have had a harder time getting this far without them. She definitely put in a good word for them when she got back. When I get back, she mumbled, shocked to hear that she was contemplating the aspect of living. Only moments ago, she'd looked into the face of death and seen her own. Brooke rushed out the door and studied the horizon. You hear that? Keiko looked up at her friend, fatigued, slowing her reaction. What? she asked. I hear helicopters, said Brooke. Keiko stood up, squinted to block some of the sun from her eyes, and saw several dots growing bigger on the horizon. She all, she questioned, wondering if she all were sending in air units to flatten the area. I, I don't think so, said Brooke, pointing to some of the security officers waving their hands and jumping up and down. Minutes after the helicopters landed, Keiko and Brooke found themselves among the Canadian Armed Forces. The FBI agents were briefed on how an emergency request came from the director of the FBI based on information from Keiko's group back at FBI headquarters that a massive ground assault was happening in the Butcher complex and that immediate assistance was needed. The small fleet of helicopters came in contact with the vehicles of the retreating enemy forces, and they were shot when each vehicle exploded once they spotted the helicopters. To their dismay, they found the remaining enemy troops dead from poisoning. After informing the commanding Canadian officer of what had occurred, leaving out the unbelievable abilities of Ari, Keiko acquired a mobile phone and immediately contacted her group. Jackson picked up. Glad to hear you guys are all right, he said. We had no way of telling you that we were able to get permission to orientate one of the satellites to focus on the complex. I'm glad you did, said Keiko. And thanks for getting the word out for assistance. Yeah. Um, we have some questions about that can wait until we get back. Keiko interrupted, not sure if the phone was a secure line. You and Romero get some rest. You did good. Roger that. Click. Hey. K. Shouted Brooke as she approached with Sean. Mr. Duking has some questions. Agent Carter. First, I want to thank you for all your help. I just want to extend my thanks from me and my family for the FBI coming out here and coincidence, Mr. Duquesne. We didn't come out here looking for you but wanted answers to some questions. And by the way, my condolences for the loss of your mother and friend. We did our best to save them, Keiko interrupted. Thank you, he said, pausing to maintain his composure at the remembrance of losing his mother. They are both in a better place now. Keiko softened a bit. I'm sorry for interrupting. You wanted to ask me something? Yes, my family is here illegally in this country. I was wondering if you could help us out. She all may still be after us, but I'm not sure. They destroyed both the journals and everything Julie was doing. They seem to have gotten everything they came for except for me and my family, said Sean. Are you asking for protection? asked Keiko. Yes. Keiko looked at Brooke, who cocked her head. You did say it would take more time to explain everything you know about Xiao. Are you still willing to provide us with that information? Of course. I know I said before that everything was on the internet, but that site's down. With Julie gone, I don't know if it'll ever come back, she was. Sean paused. A great asset to your cause. Brooke concluded. Yes, and a good friend, said Sean. Keiko nodded. Okay, there's nothing we can do about Matthew Gouchard. He is out of our hands but we can easily get in order to have you placed under our care where you don't have to answer to anyone but us. We'll get you back to the US." Sean smiled. Thank you, and don't worry about Matt saying anything. 
They'll leave certain things out, of course. I mean, who would believe him? Yeah, I know I wouldn't have. But now, nothing will ever surprise me again, said Keiko. She straightened up and folded her arms across her chest. We'll take care of everything, Mr. Duquesne. You and your family will be going back to the U.S., and, trust me, I'll do everything in my power to make sure she all never bothers you again. Brooke, please take Mr. Duquesne back to his family. Thank you, Agent Carter, said Sean as he turned and left with Brooke. Keiko watched as they walked away, wondering what other mysteries the man would open her eyes to in her future discussions. As Sean walked, he turned to Brooke. And by the way, I don't believe in coincidence. There's one episode left of Sheol. I would like to personally thank you for listening and taking this journey. However, there's much more than this trilogy. To view or listen to my many other literary works, both past and future, and more exclusive content, join my Patreon page. In the Patreon search field, just type Jeffrey W. Chapman. Join and continue the journey.